as a prophet, as the successor to the great prophet Elijah. So we're going to pick up a story in 2 Kings chapter 4. Are you there? Say amen. Yeah, and you guys there in the room, I'm watching y'all. I'm watching y'all. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Okay, uh, just let me know that you're alive. Let me know that we're reading this Word of God together, okay? So in, in chapter 4, we, if you read there, you'll find that Elijah has settled into a path. He kind of knows what he's doing. In fact, uh, he's been working for a while, so much so that he now even he has an assistant. He has his own associate, his own assistant. So he's kind of settled in. In the previous two chapters, he's done a few small miracles. He's given counsel to the king. Um, you know, he's, he's doing his job. He's sort, he's sort of in the groove. And now he's settled into a path and into a pattern. And this is where we will encounter him. 2 Kings chapter 4. If you're there, say amen. All right, here we go. We're going to pick up the story <clears throat> uh, beginning with verse 8. Beginning with verse 8. And in verse 8, the Bible says that one day Elisha went to Shunem. Elisha went to Shunem. Now, you may not know a lot about the geography of the time, but essentially Israel existed between the, the Jordan and the Sea of Galilee, and sort of all of life was encountered in this, in this, in this valley. And uh, Elisha had traveled with Elijah all throughout this region. As you know, we talked about this. They established some schools for the prophets. These were uh, education centers to reawaken religious fervor in the people. And so he would travel through this region. But uh, Elisha had actually made his home near the north by the sea near Mount Carmel. You know Mount Carmel, the place where Elijah had called upon God to deliver fire. So Elisha, as you'll read later, had his home kind of up there. And from there he would travel down throughout the region and make his, make his visits and make his journeys. Visit the king and the schools of the prophets. And he developed sort of a, a, a path, a, a road map for where he went. And the Bible tells us that one day... He was passing through Shunem, which is about 60 miles from Mount Carmel. 60 miles, uh, longer than a day's journey for walking. Uh, <clears throat> 16 miles. And the Bible says that a well-to-do woman was there who urged him to stay for a meal. So somebody in that community, as he had traveled through here a few times, said, You know, uh, we know that you, you come through here a lot. We know you're a man of God, as you'll see. Why don't you stay for lunch? Why don't you stay for lunch? Now I can tell you this because there was... Because we could be honest, when I first started as a pastor back 20 years ago, like that was still the thing to do. You would invite the pastor over for lunch after church services. And it um, seems like that custom has kind of gone away. <laughs> but back in the day, that was the thing. I, you know, I go to church and I was single too. Maybe that, maybe that makes a difference. Say, oh, pastor, please come and have lunch with us. So I got invited to all kinds of places. And I ate all kinds of special K loaves, you know, every Saturday. A lot of good stuff. Um, People these days don't do that quite so much. So uh, things have changed. But at least at the time, uh, this kind of hospitality was sort of expected. And, and so it was in the Middle East. People, as you're traveling through, there was extended hospitality. So this is nothing out of the ordinary. So it says, please, please, stay for a meal. So whenever he came by, the Bible says that he would stop there to eat. But the Bible continues. She said to her husband, you know, this man who often comes our way because it was on his path, on his journey, he is a holy man of God. Let's make a small room for him on our roof and put a bed, a table, a, champ, a chair, and a lamp for him so that he can stay there whenever he comes to us. Now, the first part of this, you know, even though, like I said, the custom has, has gone away. <laughs> uh, wouldn't mind if I made a comeback, though, by the way, if anybody wants to invite me or my family or just me. I'll go by myself. <laughs> I mean, I'm just, it's in the Bible. I'm just putting it out there. It's in the Bible. 
<laughs> yeah, Layla wants to come too. But anyway, the point is, uh, th that part you can understand. A little hospitality, you know, in the Middle East, weary traveler. That part we sort of get. But this next verse, that's kind of going a little bit further, right? It, it's going a little bit beyond. Um, let's make a room for him and he can stay here and, and uh, we'll provide for him right on top of our house. Eventually, uh, as uh, Lily and I met and married, we moved down to Loma Linda, and uh, I had to commute, which is uh, not really far, but geographically significant and kind of tough after a while to kind of go back and forth, what they call up and down the hill. And there were many times we wished someone would have made a little room for us on top of their roof so we could just spend the night in the high desert. But if they had offered, it would have been a little bit weird. I did have someone offer a trailer, to which I was like, no, thanks. I'm good. They said, you can stay in my trailer in my backyard. Nah, that's all right. Uh, it's a little bit awkward, right, for your pastor to be staying at your house. Any takers out there? No, right? Nobody. That's what I thought. Yeah, okay. So, but a little weird and a little bit kind of over the top. And yet the Bible says that she convinces her husband, let us make a small room for him so that he can stay whenever he comes to us. And so it was that Elisha would stay at their place. One day, verse 11, when Elisha came, he went up to his room and he was laying down. And he turns to his assistant, his servant Gehazi, and he says, call her. Call the Shunammite, the woman from Shun. And so he called her and she stood there and he said, tell her. Because the prophet wouldn't, he didn't invite her into the room. That would be highly inappropriate. He didn't talk directly to her, he, he, the servant. Because after all, if you have an assistant, you should use your assistant, right? Does anybody have an assistant? Do you have a personal assistant? Okay, if you have a personal assistant, or if you ever get one, you use them. That's what they're there for, okay? So um, I, I don't have one yet, but I'm, I'm still hoping to get one someday. All right, so he says, tell her, you have done, you've gone to all this trouble for us. You've done so many things for us. Now, what can we do for you? Now, obviously, we don't have all the details, but clearly, building an extra room in your house is going out of your way. Letting the men of God stay there and provide, it, it's just really going, you know, that extra mile. And so Elisha said, you know, that, that's very, very generous. The Bible tells us that this woman was well-to-do. That means she probably had plenty of resources, influence, and ability in the community. But interestingly enough, she's willing to share. And so he says, you've done so much for us. Let us do something in return. What can we do for you? What can be done for you? You've gone to all this trouble. And he says, you know, can I speak to the king or the commander of the army on your behalf? Because by this time, as I told you, Elisha has made his rounds and he has influence. He has a little bit of pull in the community. I know when I first started as a pastor, they thought, you know, oh, you must be a new teacher, candidate. I wasn't recognized. But in time, eventually, you grow into your role and your position, and you begin to have influence. Your word begins to have impact, and the word begins to matter. And so Elisha, by this time, is sort of settled in, and he has pull in the community. He has just helped the king in, in, in political matters. So he says, maybe there's something I can do for you. Maybe you need some uh, some approvals in this, in this part of the region to use your land. I don't know. What can we do for you? And the woman's answer is fascinating. She says, I have a home among my own people, which translated in today's vernacular is, I'm good. I'm good. 
What can we do for you? She says, ah, don't worry about me. I'm good. That phrase, that expression there, she's essentially saying, look, I have a community. I'm part of a community. I have my needs. I'm, I'm doing just fine. I don't, I don't really need anything extra. It's, it's interesting because on the one hand, you could think of it one of the two ways. You can say, well, this after all is just a man of God. Just a, what are you going to ask if the preacher says, what can I do for you? Other than pray for me, which is what I know. What can we do for you? Trust me, I do this all the time. Is there something we can do for you? People say, oh, I appreciate the prayers. And that's it. And I say, anything else? And I go, no, that's enough. And then I ask myself, is that because they think, what could he possibly do for us? Or is it because they really are content with their life? Like everything is just fine. What is it? Which is it? Is it because you don't think the pastor can help you or because you're actually just perfectly fine with your life? It's hard to say. I don't know the answer to that. And in our story, we don't actually know either, but her answer is no, I'm good. Some theologians believe essentially she was a woman of contentment. She was well provided for. She had everything she needed. She, wasn't, she didn't need any more, and she lived at perfect peace with her life. Have you, ever done, have you ever arrived there, anybody? Anybody at perfect peace that if a prophet offered to help you, you're like, no thanks, I'm good? Is your life that good? Anybody? Is your life that good? I don't think that's the case here. But some theologians would say that that's what her answer resembles. My life is fine. I think mostly she's like us, where we say our life is good, but we're basically too afraid to ask or admit that we need help. Anybody else with me on that one? I know because I did it this morning, and you probably did it too. You walked into the hallway, hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. I'm doing great. Yeah, is everything good? Yeah, yeah. My friend said, hey, how's the family? Oh, the family's doing fine. We give this, 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 this vibe, this, this portrayal that things... And then when we're honest, we're like, yeah, you know, things could be so, so. We, we, we give little hints. But never do we divulge the truth about what we're struggling with, about how desperate we are for certain things to change. Worse, in today's culture, they invented Instagram, where you constantly have to have a fabulous life, right? You got to get the right angle. I don't know what the right angle is. At the right angle. I see it all the time. And you got to put up the peace sign, the big smile, the big glasses, this, this, uh, this, this life. My brother and I were talking about it. My brother and I don't have Instagram accounts, but our wives do. So that's how we keep tabs of each other. And I, I, I talked to him, and I'm like, dude, how's it going, man? You're living a fabulous life. And he's like, that's all she posts on there. She only posts the good stuff. I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, my life's not that good. <laughs> it looks good. You're jumping off places. You're eating great meals. We have this sort of like obsession with portraying contentment. We're happy and satisfied and fulfilled. But are we? Are you? Are you good so that you don't need anything from Prophet Elisha? Are you like, yeah, I'm at church today, praise God, whatever, but you know, I don't really need anything, right? I'm good. I have a home amongst my own people. I'm satisfied. Are you there? Are you satisfied? See, I don't think she is, but we'll see. So Elisha says, what can I do for you? She says, nothing. I don't need anything. 
Some days I think she might have said, look, I'm trying to help you out. Don't worry about me. I'm trying to help you out. Nevertheless, she moves on, but Elisha can't and won't let it go. Bible tells us that he, he, he turns to his assistant and he says, Gehazi, we got to do something for her. We can't just be passing through here, staying in her house. Something. We can do. What can we do for her? And the assistant, you know, looks around and, and thinks about it. And he says, well, she has no son and her husband is old. She has no son and her husband is old. Now, those are two very <laughs> interesting statements. Number one. It's not like this in our culture necessary, but in their culture, having a child was considered such a great blessing and honor from God. And not having a child was considered a, a great burden socially, culturally, in terms of your legacy. Not having a child was, was sometimes seen as, as a curse. So when he says she doesn't have a child, he's essentially pointing out the obvious. There's one thing a big thing missing from this family. She's well-to-do. She doesn't have financial needs. Uh, you know, she has a place in the community, a place among my people. But there's this glaring part that's missing. That may not be true today, but for them, it was true. She does not have a child. There's no heir. And then he says, and her husband is old. We don't know how old she was, but he was old. <laughs> And he's essentially saying he's past the time or the prime uh, of his life where he might be able to provide for her a son. And we don't exactly know how we got to this scenario, but more than likely they haven't had a child because they have not been able to. As I mentioned, in their culture, it would have been something that every family aspires to. So Gehazi says she has no son and her husband is old. And so Elisha turns and he says, well, bring her back. And, and she comes back and stands in the doorway, does not go into the room because that would be inappropriate. And then he just calls out from the room. This time, he doesn't use the assistant. He just says to her in the hallway, about this time next year, you will hold a son in your arms. I've been wondering what it must have felt like for him to say those words. And what kind of expression would have been on his face? Because that's a big promise, don't you think? That's, that's quite a big statement to make. About this time next year, you will have a son in your arms. See, if, if you're Hebrew, if, if, if you're a descendant of Israelites, that's not a small thing to say. That's not a small promise to make. It's not like, you know, uh, fix, uh, fixing the, the water. It's not something small or regional. To promise a life is huge because what this resembles is Father Abraham, right? Father Abraham and Sarah who couldn't have a baby and God says, you will, you will. So, so, so Elisha being willing to take this chance or I don't know if it's like overconfidence or if he understands the size of these words and this promise. But she does. Because as soon as he says, you're going to have a baby, she answers, no, my Lord, look at it. She says, no, 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 please don't, please don't. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant or in your version, don't lie to me. Or in today's vernacular, you're lying. Stop, you're lying. Or more like, get out of here. 
Don't say, don't play games with me. See, that last section is a little bit more revealing. She objects, but not necessarily because she doesn't want one. More than likely because she has given up hope that she ever would have a family. Don't play games with me. Don't mislead me. Don't lie to me. Don't get my hopes up. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you understand, not in this capacity necessarily, but, and I I don't know about you, you know, I, I could never claim to have her experience, but I can identify with the sentiment. Have you ever been waiting for something, asking God for something, and eventually you just come to the conclusion that it's never going to happen? And that it's not going to come? And then you tell yourself, you know what, I just need to move on, and I just need to accept and be content with this. Do you know what that feels like? I'm guessing you probably do in some area or arena of your life. And it's quite possible that that this woman may have wanted a a baby in a family for quite some time. Maybe they tried and tried and eventually they came to the conclusion that for whatever reason, maybe under the curse of God, as some would have interpreted, or maybe just missing the favor of God, that she needed to just accept this station in her life. So she has come to that place where she doesn't even ask for that anymore. Because when when, when the prophet says, what can I do for you? She says, nothing. I'm good. I am content. I'm settled. You know what? This is all that life has to offer me. It's okay. I'm fine with it. Have you ever said that? I guess, I guess my marriage is not going to be happy. I, I'm okay. I, I'm fine with it. I guess I'm just stuck in this job, and, and you know what? I'm fine with it. I'm going to be fine. I'm just, I've learned to accept it, and that's just how it is. And then this man shows up, and he says, no, no, no. A baby's coming your way. And she says, stop lying. Don't raise my hopes. I've been crushed before. Verse 17, but the woman became pregnant. And the next year, about that same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. See, in this moment, this is a pivotal moment, I think. Yes, on the one hand, we are identifying with this woman's I don't know, confusing moment here, like to, to suddenly have a, you know, be pregnant after all this time. And, and, and her sense of contentment versus need and, and what's possible and, and, and giving up hope. But, but this is also a pivotal moment for Elisha or Elisha's life. See, as I mentioned, he'd been doing small things, you know, stepping into the shadow of, of Elijah, the previous prophet. But here, it's different. See, in, in every other situation, he's answering a need. People said, uh, the water needs healing. The, 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 the king says, I need assistance. We have a problem. But here, he's interjecting himself into someone's story. You see the difference there? He doesn't need to intervene. Her life is fine. But Elisha takes it upon himself to introduce hope into this scenario. He starts promising babies. This is no small thing for a Hebrew prophet. To start promising babies to people who haven't had them. And the baby comes. And of course, 
If the story ended here, we could all go, wow. That's awesome. God is good, amen? God is good. God delivers, even when we don't think he will. God does miraculous things. And we would say to each other, so you got to believe, you got to hope, and hang in there, and God will provide, God will provide, amen. But the story doesn't end there. It feels good here, but life just won't let us, right? Life just won't allow us. That's why we can't have nice things, as they say. Life just doesn't stop coming after us. And you know how the story continues. Uh, he has, she has a baby, and, 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 and just as Elijah told her, he's, she's holding this baby. And over time, verse 18, the child grew. The child grew. And one day he went out with his father. We don't know how old, but old enough to go out with his dad to the fields. And he was with them that are reaping in the season, harvesting. And while he's out working with his dad, we don't know how old, but probably not a teenager yet. He turns to his dad and says, my head hurts. My head, my head. Dad says to a servant, please take him back in. Take him to his mother because when the babies get sick, you send them to mom, right? That's, that's what you do. Go see your mom. And the servant lifted the baby, carried him to his mother, and the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. Now, right there, no one can identify, or, or maybe somebody can that you know of, but I mean, I, I can't even imagine to be holding your, your child as they die in your arms. It, it seems so outrageous. But although you can't identify with that particular act, the sensation, maybe you can, the, the thought, the feeling, this reality where, I don't know if it's happened to you, but my guess it is, that you have received something good in your life, thought that it came from God, and then it vanished. Has that ever happened to you? Maybe, 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 maybe you were in a marriage relationship that you thought God ordained for you and it didn't work out. Maybe you, you left one job for another because you thought God was calling you there and, and, and it turns out you got fired. This sense that somehow you had, you had didn't want to, but, but you put your hope in God, but you were eventually disappointed. I'm guessing you probably know what that's like in some way, shape, or form. Maybe not to disagree, but in some way, this idea to have, you know, you guarded yourself so closely, but then you opened your heart, and for a little while it was good. And then eventually, as it always is, life takes over, or at least it seems, and ruins everything. So I think maybe you can identify. I, I can. The boy dies in her arms. But her response is totally irrational. The Bible says that she carries him up to the prophet's room, puts him on the bed, and then closes the door and leaves. Verse 22, and she calls out her husband and he says, I need one of your drivers and I need the car, a servant and a donkey. I need to go visit the man of God. A, a husband doesn't understand. Sometimes, you know, we're the last to know what's really going on. What's happening? And she says, everything is fine. He's like, but wait, it's not Sabbath. It's not a special holiday. Why do you need to go see the pastor? And she says, it's all right. Don't worry about it. Has your spouse ever done that to you? Don't worry about it. I got this. It's totally irrational. And if I were him, I'd be pretty upset. I guess I'm the only one. 
Or do you guys like not being told what's going on? Kept in the dark. Wouldn't you be a little upset? I know that if it was reverse, let's just get this out the way. <laughs> if it was dad who put the baby in the room, shut the door and said, I'm going to go find the guy. Moms will have a problem with that. Right, moms? Come on, let's be honest. You wouldn't be like, okay, cool, whatever, sonny. You'd be like, what'd you do? <laughs> right? Let's be honest here. It's totally irrational what she's doing. She leaves the dead body of her only son up in the room and says, I need to go see the pastor. It's totally irrational. It doesn't make any sense. And when the husband says something's not right, and she says, don't worry about it. It's all right. Why are you going to him to him? You don't need to have the answer to that. And she gets in the car and tells the driver, step on it. Tells the, 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 get, just lean on. Don't slow down for me unless I tell you. And so she sets out to meet the man of God at Mount Carmel, which is where his house was. Totally rational. But we're having a struggle here. How is she going to respond when the one thing she didn't want to get her hopes for finally came and then it was tragically taken from her? She doesn't know what to do. The only thing she can think of is go see the man of God. The Bible says that she makes her way 60 miles. I'm not exactly sure how long it took her. But off in the distance, Elisha sees her. The Bible tells us right there. The Bible says that he's kind of up in a perch. His, his house might have been on the way up the mountain a little bit. And in the distance, he sees her and says to his assistant, look, it's a Shunammite, which would normally be a, a reason for, for celebration because she's been so good to them. But this is highly unusual. Usually, Elisha goes to them. She never comes this way. Look, there she is. Go and meet her. Something must be wrong. Ask her, are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Elisha knows her making a trip this way is, is completely out of the norm, totally, totally out of the norm. Something is wrong. And so Gehazi gets down off the mountain, runs over there, and when he reaches her, he asks her, are you okay? Why are you doing here? And her answer just kind of blew me away. She says, everything is all right. Nothing for you to worry about. Can you believe that answer? Your one and only child you hope for, and in your old age you get one, and you hold them and love them, and every day you watch over them, you're amazed at how beautiful and wonderful God is and how generous he is in giving you this baby. And then the baby dies in your arms. And when asked, she says, everything is all right. Well, this is either the biggest lie or some unexplainable statement of faith. I can't tell necessarily, but I do know what it's like to lie. Do you? I'm guessing not. I do know what it's like to tell people, yeah, everything is good. It's all right. I'm doing fine. When inside everything is falling apart. When you've lost your hope, you've lost your path, you've lost your trust, you lost your treasure. Are you okay? Is everything, she says, everything is all right. Maybe she just didn't want to talk to him. Because when she moves up and finally reaches the man of God, she falls down and grabs his feet. And this would be scandalous, so Gehazi says, hey, what are you doing? Get off of him. You're not supposed to touch him. But the man of God says, leave her alone. She's in distress. I don't know why. 
And then she says, look, 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 verse 28. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? Didn't I tell you, don't get my hopes up? See, in that statement, she reveals the serious heartbreak that's happening because she had already come to terms with what others would have said is a curse on her life. She had already settled for, and, and, and then in that dry desert, God raised up hopes through the prophet. She didn't want to hope. She didn't want to believe in that. She didn't want a baby. She didn't want to go through the expectations and the waiting and the praying. She didn't want to do that anymore, and yet God raises this up. And so finally she gives in and loves this child and believes that he is the gift of God, and then he dies. So she comes and he says, I told you not to get my hopes up. I didn't even ask. I didn't want this. You gave it to me. Didn't I tell you? Don't get my hopes up. Have you ever felt like that? Do you feel like that right now? Can you identify with her right now? That you're in a place right now in this moment of just anger and heartbreak because you feel like you let your guard down and you started to believe that God is good, but somehow even though you have all this evidence to the contrary, that sometimes God does miraculous things for you, and you started to believe in that, and you started to feel good about it, and then it all came crashing down. Why? Why did you get my hopes up? See, that's what's happening right now, and this is what's on the line for her and for us. Hope. Hope. Have you come to a place in your life where you are Satisfied with this because you think you can't hope for more? Have you come to a, a conclusion about where you are, the station in your life, your health, your marriage, your relationship with your children, or, or your work, where you're just like, well, I guess this is as good as it gets? And you've just given up on hope? You've given up the notion as, as foolish that somehow God can want more from you. Yes, you hear, you sing, you know the promises. God says, I, I plans to give you hope in the future. And you're like, yes, 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 amen. But basically for me, this is as good as it gets. And I dare not hope again because I don't want to be disappointed. Have you got there? Because this is where the woman is. In fact, she was already there. That's why she's so upset. Didn't I tell you, God, don't mess with my heart. And now Elisha's in the moment, and Elisha's answer is also revealing. He tells his assistant, buckle up, and we need to go. He sends him ahead. You know the story. And he arrives later. And the Bible tells us that when he arrives, verse 32, when Elisha reached the house, the boy was, let, was, was dead, lying on his bed, and he went in and he shut the door. And then he began to pray. See, Elisha now is in the same boat where she is because you have to understand, Elisha's having to live the same moment. See, Elisha didn't ask for this. He was happy to plow his fields, yes, with his 12 oxen pair. 
Elisha didn't ask to be called into prophetic ministry. He was happy to live where he was. He had a place amongst his people. He didn't need anything from God. And here comes Elijah, gives him the cloak, and he says, I have a purpose for you. I have something more. I have something greater. And Elisha gave all that up, and he said, okay, fine, I'll go with you. And he began to believe that maybe this was his role, and certainly was, it was looking good for a while. He was healing the waters. He was helping the school of the prophets. He was even helping. And now things were going so well, he must have asked himself, why did I open my big mouth? Why couldn't I let just things be? I had to promise a baby. Don't you think? He is being challenged in that same way. Is all this stuff just a cruel joke on us? This believing in God, this hoping for things, this asking for prayers and miracles. Is it just a cruel joke? Life is just going to have its way with us anyway. Elisha's having to ask these questions that I know you and I ask every day. Maybe you're asking them right now. But Elisha does the only thing he can do, which is the only thing she knew to do. Go to the man of God. Go back to God. And Elisha closes the door. And he begins to pray. See, friends, this is what's hanging in the balance in this moment for you and for me. Hope. Hope. Is there still a God today? Is there still a God, even though you're in this moment holding something dead in your arms? A marriage that you thought was from God. A job that you thought was from God. A church that you thought God sent you to. And you're feeling it dying in front of you. And you have to ask yourself, will I still hope? Can I? Should I? I can't answer that for you. But I know that as I struggle with these questions, I turn to Elisha and I say to myself, I got to do just like him. I have to pray. I got to talk to God. See, this is this moment here. Elisha has to make this big decision. Is he going to give in to the circumstances of life? Is he going to give up on everything that, that, that he's been preaching and saying and professing? Or is he going to go all in with God and say there's no other way but him? See, this is this moment. See, what seemed like an irrational act is actually an act of courage. Rather than grieve again for her loss and stay angry at God, she runs to the man of God and says, Hope comes from you. I will not let you go until you bless me. Read it. She grabs onto the feet and says, No, I'm not letting go, God. Life wants to take everything from me, my hope, my beliefs, everything that was good, but I'm not letting go. And that's what Elisha does. He turns back, runs to the house, closes the door, and begins to wrestle with God. God, I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go. I'm not letting go of hope. I'm not letting go of my future. I refuse to give up on you. Well, everyone else would just get mad or settle. I refuse to believe that hope has died. You guys know the story. Elisha lays himself over the boar, and he prays and he prays. And he talks to God and he wrestles, and then he lays himself over the boar. And the boy comes back to life. You know the story. But the moment is important. See, because I think for all of us right here sitting in this room, hope is still hanging in the balance. 
hope is still hanging in the balance. Life is cruel, and if you're around long enough, you experience these moments of great, great disappointment, great disillusionment. Things that you thought were from God suddenly are taken from you. And you are tempted to give up hope and to just turn that into anger against God. But there is another option. Just like Elisha, just like the Shunammite, we can hang on to God's legs and say, I will not let go. See, friends, that's the choice that's for me, right in front of me today. And I believe it's your choice too. And I'm, and I'm saying, don't let go. Don't let go. Hang on to God. Even when the world wants to take hope from you. Don't let go. See, I, I don't believe God does evil in our lives. My rooted family and I discussed this these last couple of weeks. God cannot participate in evil in our lives. But he orchestrates it to lead us back to him. He uses the pain and the suffering so that we run back to him. See, the devil wants you to see what you're going through and, and, and force you to run from God because he knows that if he can take you away from God, you will lose every chance you have at a better tomorrow, at a new and different tomorrow. But you and I, we must hang on, even in the darkest of night. So I'm pleading with you, don't let go. Don't let go. There is hope available today. I don't know when it'll happen. I don't know if it'll be soon or that great day when he comes again. But I know we can hope. I know that there's a chance for, for things that you have given up on that God can resurrect. Because God is a God of resurrected dreams. And I just believe that we must hold on. That's my challenge and my prayer for myself and for us.